Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm very excited about our guest today, uh, not only because his journey is remarkable, but also because I'm a, a big time user, you know, of them. You know, I love what they do. So I was very excited when 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 he mentioned that he was up for doing this podcast and to to have him, you know, with all of us today. So I think we're going to be learning a lot about building and scaling. I mean, he's done several businesses, uh, some of them with success, some of them more with learnings and with lessons that came along the way. But uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today. So, Tim Strack, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Alejandro. So uh, happy to be here. So, Tim, you were born in a small town in Germany. So tell us about your upbringings. How was life growing up? I had a super happy childhood, but I was also raised in a very entrepreneurial family. So my father was a kid of eight, and I think most of them turned out to be Come ultimately entrepreneurs. And also my mother came out of an entrepreneurial family. Um, and ultimately she inherited the business uh, that ultimately my dad ran. So talking business was almost like a, a daily habit in our family. And so my wish to become an entrepreneur, I think, uh, is older than, than, than I can think. And I'm in a lucky situation that it ultimately did happen. Did you know early on that you wanted to be an entrepreneur because of what you were seeing at home? I think it was more because freedom was always a huge driver for me. I could never really see doing what other people tell me to do. So I'm not good at following other people's rules. So, and, but I think also, also um, the, the, the upbringing and, and seeing what my parents and grandparents did really helped. Very cool. And obviously, entrepreneurship is is really all about problem solving. As they say, if you want something done, give it to an entrepreneur. And and perhaps that may have influenced the fact that you went out and, and studied engineering. More problem solving. Yeah. And I, I always really tried to solve problems. So solving problems was, in all kinds of views, something I loved in my childhood. And in, And talking about your childhood here, Tim... You know, the, um, as they say, ideas take time to incubate. You know, they are typically dormant there, and we don't know that they're even there. And it's interesting how you are now uh, making a killing with your company, with Chrono24, which is all about watches. And we'll get into that in just a little bit. But at 15 already, 
is when you got your first watch and where that love for watches was present. So how did you develop that, that love for watches so early on? I think before the love of watches, and maybe that's even stronger, was a love for fine mechanics. I spent hours and hours playing with Lego, Lego Technics in my childhood. And funnily, I know a lot of watch collectors who also spend a hell, a hell of time with Lego. So I think the, 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 the passion and the love for fine mechanics and all kinds, all, all things tech, uh, I think was the basis for that. And then I realized um, that you can have this beautiful mechanics, tiny put together on your wrist. And I think that was my love for watches, much more than, than the love for design or brands. It was much more the technology um, that were in it that initiated it. And the design and the love of certain brands certainly came later, but the, the tech did it before. And, and in your case as well, Tim, you know, right after, you know, the time of, of being in university, you, you started your, your first business, I mean, very early on. I mean, we're talking about, this was a, a marketplace for gifts right around the bubble collapsing. So I'm sure that that, that experience for you was a very rich in terms of a lessons learned. Yes, that, that was uh, uh, a super fast kind of like truly executive MBA, maybe even an, an, an MBA on steroids, um, learning how to scale, um, learning how to build a business, but also learning uh, what it means to fail, um, to scale down, to let people go, to really make some tough decisions, how important it is to panic early. I, I was lucky that I did most a lot of my mistakes uh, pretty early in my career uh, and had enough room for, for other mistakes in my, my later uh, entrepreneurial being. And I'm sure that um, being exposed as well to, to that moment, to that type of market cycle, because everything that goes up is going to go down eventually and up again you know, later on. But right now we live in a in an era where not a lot of people really remember, you know, what happened, you know, during that time, you know, so I guess, you know, out of being exposed to, to that bubble bursting and, and to what happened, you know, what did you learn about, you know, businesses and dealing with market cycles too? Yeah. First of all, I think, I mean, the, the, the bubble, the, the tech bubble in 2000 and then the burst of the bubble um, was just the first one. The second one was also the financial crisis. Um, in 2009, and that was actually the time when we kicked off Chrono 24. Um, so I think I take things a lot cooler today, be it uh, the super high valuations that we're seeing right now, but also um, seeing markets crashing. I know that both will, like the, like the top markets will come down eventually, but also in a crisis, um, the markets will come back. And I think that gives me probably a little bit more coolness um, than um, what some super young founders have today. I don't even know if this is always good, but at least I can probably sleep a little better during crisis um, than, than a first-time founder. Yeah, no, of course. And after the turning page, you know, with, with, with the first business, you went with your second one. And the second one, you know, actually had a, a you know, it, you went through the life, through the full life cycle because it was acquired by uh, Pangora. So in this case, I mean, what you guys were doing was a market engine, 
you know, for 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 really price comparison in there. But but I think that you know what you learned here was going through the full life cycle of racing and exiting, but then also perhaps really learning the impact of dilution. So so what did you learn about dilution during this journey with Mentesis? Well, I mean, the business was ultimately sold for for a nice amount of money, which might sound really small today. I think the the, the business was sold for forty million dollars, um, but I was so heavily diluted at the time um, that this was my like my personal outcome was more was not really life changing; it was more car changing, um, as I sometimes jokingly say. Um, but I also did a got another important lesson um, in that business. So that business um, ran a an engine providing data, like a white label solution for price comparison engines. So we helped a lot of the top European price comparison engines to to run their business. So we provided data, and, and sometimes we provided the entire uh, web front end uh, to run the price comparison engine. Um, and at the time, when when we um, ran that business, some of the top price comparison engines were sold for a pretty large amount of money. I think there were six or seven of them um, selling for more than half a billion dollars. I think the first one was Calcu, acquired by Yahoo for close to $500 million, and 475. And then a few others came along also in that category. Shopping.com ultimately went public and was purchased by eBay. Uh, it was Nextag, Price Runner. The, the German Idealo, I think, in its peak, probably was more than a billion dollar valuation. And it seemed that we did all the work, that we did most of the engineering and, and, and uh, data management. Um, but our business was far from that valuation. So I realized how important it is in these days um, to own the customer. So like back, back in the days, um, the shovel makers often made more money than the gold diggers. Um, but here it seems uh, that uh, the shovel makers were not the lucky ones in the end. But to really make a difference um, and create value, and this is not only about personal um, outcome, but also to really create value and, and make a difference for the customer, my feeling was you really need to own the customer. So. Um, when, when I left that business, which was, I think, two years after I left the business and I was in a lucky situation to have a little bit of financial liquidity so that I could take a year off, um, and it was the same thing with my, with my business partner. Um, so we had time to rethink uh, what's the next big thing. Um, and we both had a passion for watches. And, and being able to take um, a year off and think and really go into the, the right next category I think was ultimately the most valuable piece that I got out of my um, uh, first business, much more valuable than the, than the financial proceeds. And of course, the learning and also the network of great people that we could then bring in our next venture. Now, in Chrono24, which is your latest baby and probably your, your biggest success to date, the way that you went about it was uh, a little bit not the traditional uh, kind of way, which is more like uh, building, you know, the, the, the pipes from, from, from nothing. Like instead of like doing that and competing, you know, against someone that was already established, you decided that it was best to acquire an existing platform. So tell us about that thought process and why you decided to go that path versus, you know, starting, you know, from, from nothing. 
I mean, the first first was the idea. I spent hours and hours um, in the the early 2000, uh, between 2000 and 2008. Um, on a, on a pretty colorful auction site, searching for watches, and I always had the experience that this is not the final solution. This is not um, as good as it could be to to search, browse for watches, get inspirations, and ultimately buy these watches. Um, and then when, when I was thinking about, hey, what could be next? I wasn't super successful with my previous businesses. So the first lesson was, well, let's not aim for a super strong financial success let's aim for a super fun experience and um and for a game-changing product um, that is fun for us running it and fun for our users um, to use it and that made me think and and decide to go into watches i love the category um i was thinking hey is this something i could do for 10 years without any financial success? And it was a clear yes. And then we looked around, and besides eBay, we found another business um, that was pretty ugly. It looked super, super basic. And that was Crown24. And then we, we contacted the people, and, and it was very another very lucky situation that the guys running it, even though this, even at the time, was a global business or a global platform. It wasn't even really a business, but it, it was already a global platform. The guys were living 30 minutes away from my home. So I could call them and even jump in the metro and, and visit the people the very next day. And I remember the guy that ran it at the time showing me 11 slides um, of that business. And uh, on every single slide, I was super impressed by the traction and the, the numbers that they already had. On the very last slide, he, um, he suggested um, a purchase price. So the good news was he was willing to sell. But the bad news was price was about five, almost 10x of what we originally thought we would need to pay for this super simple platform. Um, but traction was a lot better. And uh, we all know this in marketplaces, these are winner takes it all businesses. And you rather want to be, you really want to be the win winner early on and then just try to defend your market position. So, um, and this, the decision whether we want to compete against them um, and or, or buy out the platform and the brand. At the time, it took us six to eight months because we just didn't see the, the, the price as being realistic. And I have to be honest, it was my co-founder who convinced me um, that this is probably even the cheaper and faster route to success um, than competing against them. I was more on the team of, hey, let's take a deep breath and uh, compete against them. What they have built, we, we can build this in a few weeks. And from a technolo technological point of view, we were probably right. But from a market traction, for bringing together supply and demand at the same time, looking back, it was definitely the right decision. So then, so then in this case, what ended up being the business model of Corona24 for the people that are listening to really get it? Correct. This was a very, very simplistic not even a marketplace. It was more like a classified business. Dealers could pay a few ten, some a hundred. I think the the biggest package was one hundred and twenty nine euro, and put as many watches as they want on the platform. Um, nothing else. It was a very very simple model, but people loved it. People already had a huge trust in the platform, even though there was not a lot of support. 
neither on the sell side nor on the buy side. And this is something that we then continuously build over the last 11 years. So then in terms of um, capitalizing the business, especially after what you had learned with your previous company, I mean, how did you go about capitalizing the business? Well, since the purchase price was 5 or 10x of what we thought, um, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't pay it for ourselves. So we had to bring in external capital. And at the time, and this was in the midst of the financial crisis, it wasn't even that easy to, to get capital for that acquisition. But luckily, um, we, we found a few befriended business angels, fools, friends, and family, and, uh, and one super small institutional investor who was interested in the category, who liked us as a team, and was willing um, to give us a, a little bit of money um, so that we can finance the buyout. Uh, and, and Dirk and I, um, we also put a little bit of money in, and then we all together um, purchased the platform. But since then, um, we wanted to keep it small, fun. I still remember, and be, I, I, I still meet employees from time to time who tell me, hey, Tim, um, I remember um, our interview when you promised us that we, were, uh, that we will not be more than 15 employees, one five uh, at the top, uh, and run really a small ship. Um, and today, um, we are in our entire group, more than 500 um, people uh, working wow. for us. So this is a promise that we definitely did not keep. I hear you. I hear you. So, so up until now, how much capital have you guys raised today that is uh, publicly disclosed? Well, in the first four years, we have not raised capital at all. I mean, we, we made the business profitable as soon as possible. Um, and this was also very deeply one of my really deep wishes after being unprofitable for the last 10 years, quarter after quarter. I really wanted to really run a profitable business. And once the business is profitable, it completely changed my mindset of how, how running a startup. Before being profitable in the previous 10 years, I always thought, hey, the exit, the ultimate sale of the business uh, is the final goal. But all of a sudden, as the business was profitable and still growing, I never really thought about an exit anymore. Um, and I thought, hey, this is fun. This is cool. But after three being being in the journey for three or four years, we also realized that our risk profile didn't really match with the potential anymore. So when, when we had our strategy summits or strategy meetings probably twice a year, we always kept saying, you, we, we should. We should open an office in Hong Kong. We should open an office in the US. We should invest a lot more in marketing. At the time, we didn't do any marketing. Um, we should invest in content. Uh, maybe we should even consider running a TV campaign. Maybe we should even build uh, a production facility that can physically um, repair and service watches and, 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 and take trade-ins if private sellers prefer trading. I mean, the business was profitable, so we didn't really need money. But that was the moment. I think this was 2014 when we started to approach investors. And at the same time, also a lot of investors approached us. Given our growth profile and our financial profile, not needing any money, everybody wanted to, like, almost everybody that we talked to was open to invest. So we had a, pretty much a free choice. And at the time, we picked inside partners from New York because they liked watches. They truly understood marketplaces. And they also had a strong network in the United States. 
um, and we liked the people a lot. Um, so they were the first ones to came in, um, but they didn't invest a lot of money in the company. We, did, we all did a little bit of secondary. Um, so we sold a little bit of our shares that also really changed our own risk profile, which I think in the long term was also a very important move for us. Um, money that has been invested into the business so far um, was really, really limited. Either the money is still there or has been used for, for acquisitions, but we never really had a strong burn rate. I think over the last 11 years, the accumulated burn is, uh, is less than 10 million euro. Mm. Um, and the total amount invested, and by the way, this includes money that's still in the bank account, especially from our latest round that was more than 100 million euro, um, but, but also including secondaries. I think the total amount invested into the, in, in the company was um, 200 million euro. But this was not to finance burn. Got it. Well, that's a lot of zeros, Tim. Good stuff. So, so I guess, uh, you know, what I want to ask you now is uh, in terms of the, of the business, right? So if, if, if you were to, to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Chrono 24 is fully realized, what does that world look like? We, we want, I mean, as you say in our industry, we really want to democratize buying and selling watches. And if, if you want to buy a pre-owned watch, it's not that easy. I mean, you can go to a store and you might be lucky that this store has 150, maybe even 200 watches, but, but usually they don't have more. I mean, they just cannot. I mean, this is a lot of working capital, um, a lot of security issues. So it's, it's very, very few offline stores have that availability. But if you want to have a pre-owned watch, you have certain preference about brand. You want a certain model. Maybe you want even a certain um, age. Let's say you want to watch from the day of, of the year of your birth. Uh, maybe you want a certain status, not too many scratches, but it should have a little bit of patina. Uh, so you need a huge selection so that you can really find what you exactly want. Uh, and in Crown24, we have by far um, the largest selection of watches. We have 500,000 watches. And, and I think in terms of um, transparency and, and, and selection, I think this is where we are very close to our vision. Um, but to make the transaction even easier, even safer, to offer a lot more services around the value chain. And, and to do this um, globally, Crown24 is already a global platform, but when it comes to China, when it comes to Japan, um, we have just started. Uh, I mean, we, we support the language. Um, we have some dealers um, from these countries, um, but uh, these markets have not reached um, the the size um, that we ultimately see. So I think in the long term, it's um, geographic expansion and really having conquered all markets, services around the value chain. I would still say that Tron24 is a very simple, I mean, it's, it's a simple and trusted service. Um, but you could imagine a lot more services alongside um, the value chain. So I think there's still a lot of homework that needs to be done to help buyers and sellers to make this journey even easier, more comfortable, and more, even more global. And, uh, and, and in your case here, I mean, especially with what you're seeing, I mean, wh where is the world of watches, you know, heading? Because, I mean, now you see Apple watches kicking in, you know, more like the digital aspect of it. So where do you think watches, you know, as a whole are going? Do you think like this, still the Swiss, you know, made classic, you know, is going to be the, the, the prominent one? Or, or where do you think, you know, this market is heading? 
this market is definitely heading to pre-owned. Um, so, so when you buy a watch, and this is not only a watch, this is this is a lot of other goods. You you not only want to just have a watch, you want to have a story. Um, you, you want something that that has purpose for yourself. And I would say that the watch, the luxury watch, is probably one of the most durable consumer goods. I always tend to say that in a hundred years from now, and and you and I probably know how quickly hundred years pass. And I would assume that in 100 years, um, obviously, you and I won't be there. My children won't be there anymore. My wife won't be there. Probably even the house we're living in won't be there. Um, but I'm pretty convinced that my watch collections will still be alive, hopefully um, on the wrists of my grandchildren or grand-grandchildren. And, and owning something with such a long future and maybe even a super long legacy is just such an antagonism in today's world where everything is just being thrown away after a few years uh, or even less. Uh, even my phone, fashion, everything is just coming and going, but the watch is still there. And this longevity of that pieces, I think also translates into an industry uh, that's not changing super fast. I mean, the, the most successful brand in this category is by far Rolex. And you almost don't see any innovation. So an innovation might be a new color that they introduce or um, including the di uh, increasing the diameter from uh, 38 to 39. Uh, and I really like this in a, in a super fast moving world, having one category that is just super, super traditional. Um, and I know that these watches have been around for 100 years, and I'm pretty convinced that even 100 years from now, I can still get a repair, get a service. And, and I love to have this craftsmanship, this beauty, um, and also this belongingness to a certain brand um, on my wrist and, and, and being uh, belonging to a certain group. Um, and your question regarding the smartwatch, I mean, this was a big question five years ago. When the smartwatch came in, is that going to replace the luxury watch, or or is the luxury watch uh, will will the luxury watch prevail, and and not let the smartwatch in? And as as we see it today, uh, the smartwatch is a success, but it's a completely different value proposition and a completely different product. It doesn't show the time. Um, it's a it's a tech device. It's a computer. It's a message device, messaging device. Uh, it's a health device. And what we see is that, especially the millennials, like people today between, let's say, 20 and 30, who have not worn watches for a long, long time, all of a sudden are wearing watches again. And we see that, especially in markets with a super high smartwatch penetration, we also see a correlation where the luxury watch um, demand is growing very rapidly. So, for example, the United States is the market with the strongest um, penetration in smartwatches, and also right now the fastest growing market in luxury watches. So it seems that the smartwatch is not replacing the luxury watch. It's more a gateway um, for a luxury watch purchase um, after having a smartwatch for maybe five or 10 years. Got it. So imagine, Tim, I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time to that moment where you actually, you know, created your, let's say your first business, right? 
if you had the opportunity of sitting down with a younger Tim, I mean, now you have like three, you know, companies under your belt. I mean, incredible, you know, wealth of knowledge that you've been able to, to gather, you know, over this time. But if you were, let's say, able to be there with that younger Tim and give that younger Tim one, one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? I think it would be, if I would circle it down to a single word, I would probably say focus. Focus. I think the one thing that was always hard for me, and I see this being hard for many other entrepreneurs, is to focus on a single compelling value proposition and only do that and do this better than everybody else in the world. And if you do something, no matter how small, how niche this is, if this is something you do better than everybody else in the world, you will be super successful in the long term. Just be ready to, I mean, one of our investors always says success is a marathon of sprints. So it is, um, you need to run for a while. It can take a long, long, long time. But just focus on one thing. If you believe in this thing, that this is a strong value for your customer. And if you are better than everybody else in the world, people will find you and will buy your product. I love it. So, Tim, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Probably the best way is uh, to, to look on LinkedIn. Um, that's, my, that's my social media presence where I'm most active. So it's uh, Tim, T-I-M, Straka, S-T-R-A-C-K-E, um, on LinkedIn. And you might be asked for my email address. It's, uh, you can also just send me an email. It's tim at cron24.com, T-I-M. And feel free to reach out. Um, by the way, we are always looking for um, passionate people uh, who want to help us to, to change this industry uh, in our Hong Kong office, in our New York office, uh, also here in Germany. So if you love tech, if you like, like love data, and if you love watches, by the way, which is not a must, um, then we're, we're always super curious to get to know you. Amazing. Well, Tim, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.